Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. The CEO of TikTok testifying before Congress concerns are rising that the Chinese regime has access to American users' data. Will the CEO be able to quell those concerns through efforts to secure the data? Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw continues to take heat on Capitol Hill. Senators are demanding transparency and accountability in the wake of the Ohio train wreck. The Missouri Attorney General is trying to remove a St. Louis prosecutor from office. The prosecutor in question allegedly received funding from billionaire George Soros during her campaign. The CEO of Citigroup expressed confidence in the U.S. banking system despite the bank failures of recent weeks, but the leader of a hedge fund giant warned that more banks could fail within two years. The Olympics can't be a referee in political disputes. That's how IOC President Thomas Bach is defending the decision to let Russia compete in the 2024 Games. We have the details. Senators are pushing for a fast passage of a rail safety law in the wake of the Ohio train derailment. They demanded clear answers and action from Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw yesterday during testimony. Entity's Daniel Monahan has more. Ohio State Legislative Director Clyde Whitaker says Norfolk Southern had clear information that the train was in distress, but didn't convey that information to the railroad crews. They've seen this car trend hotter and hotter over the course of three detectors, I believe. Senator Maria Cantwell asked Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw for a reaction. Once the train hit the third detector, which showed that we hit the threshold, then they tra- the crew acted appropriately. However, the, the part had already failed. Senators questioned the Norfolk Southern CEO for the second time this month. He backed calls for rail safety reform, but did not endorse a bipartisan bill. Senator J.D. Vance reacts. But you cannot, on the one hand, beg the government to bail you out of a labor dispute three months ago and then say that it's big government to have proper safety standards in the way that you conduct your railroads. It's a ridiculous argument. It doesn't pass the smell test. A bipartisan group of senators led by Vance and Senator Sherrod Brown introduced a bill to prevent future train disasters earlier this month. The bill would require enhanced safety procedures for trains carrying hazardous materials. It would also require wayside defect detectors, a minimum of two-person crews, and increased fines for wrongdoing. Shaw did not endorse major provisions of the legislation, such as requiring two-person crews or hiking maximum civil penalties for railroads. Senator Sherrod Brown says the railroads have long argued against increasing fines for safety violations and that Norfolk Southern had nearly 600 violations in the last fiscal year. They paid an average fine of less than $3,300. You heard that right, not $30 million, not $3 million, just over $3,000. Brown criticized the railroad company's plans to spend nearly $3.5 billion on stock buybacks. Senator Peter Welch pressed Shaw to suspend Norfolk Southern stock buyback program, but the CEO disagreed. He says Norfolk Southern spends $1 billion a year on safety, adding that stock buybacks never come at its expense. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. One of President Biden's nominees for a trial court was tripped up during a confirmation hearing yesterday. Senator John Kennedy asked him some pointed questions about a particular legal motion. Tell me how you analyze a Brady motion. How I analyze a Brady motion? Yes. 
Senator, in my uh, four and a half years on the bench, I don't believe I've had the occasion to uh, address a Brady uh, motion in my career. Do you know what a Brady motion is? Uh, Senator, uh, in my time on the bench, I've not had occasion to address that, and so uh, it's not coming to mind at the moment what a Brady motion is. Judge Cruz isn't the first of Biden's nominees to be stumped by Senator Kennedy's questioning. A judge nominated for U.S. District Judge in Washington State also couldn't field some of his questions in her case about various parts of the Constitution. Uh, tell, tell me what Article 5 of the Constitution does. Article 5 is not coming to mind at the moment. Okay. How about Article 2? Neither is Article 2. Okay. Do you know what purposivism is? The judge defended herself. She says that she serves uh, on the highest trial court in Washington State and often faces issues she's not familiar with. So she does research and thoroughly reviews the law in such cases. Missouri's attorney general continues trying to remove the top prosecutor in St. Louis. The AG says the St. Louis official is not enforcing the law, resulting in over 10,000 cases being dismissed. The local prosecutor is denying those claims. Here's the story. Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey this week submitted a lengthy court filing. The over 120-page long filing about Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner states that she has sacrificed the safety of the city of St. Louis. She has squandered the goodwill of the courts through misdirection and incompetence. She has turned away grieving families while murderers walk free. A.G. Bailey last month filed a legal proceeding seeking to remove Gardner from office. That's for alleged failure to perform her official duties. Bailey filed the action after a visiting team athlete from Tennessee lost both of her legs in a traffic accident. The accused driver, Daniel Riley, is a repeat probation violator who allegedly shouldn't have been on the loose at the time. Bailey says that Gardner failed to timely move to revoke bond and prosecute Riley, and as a result, Riley was not in custody at the time of the crash. Gardner responded saying she tried to get Riley locked up, but judges didn't comply. Bailey told Fox News earlier this month that this isn't just about Riley. This is a continuous pattern of behavior of her unlawful refusal to do her job. According to Bailey's data, Gardner's inaction has resulted in nearly 12,000 criminal cases being dismissed. According to the Missouri Times, Gardner received funding from billionaire George Soros during her 2016 campaign. Soros funds progressive prosecutors all around the nation. According to Matt Palumbo, who wrote a book about Soros, Gardner is one of 75 prosecutors nationwide who benefited from Soros' efforts to get progressives elected. KMOV in St. Louis reported that Gardner responded to the allegations, saying they do not serve as a lawful reason for her removal. She says Bailey would have to prove willful negligence or that any failure to act was intentional. With TikTok CEO Sho Chu testifying before Congress, a central issue is whether the CCP has access to user data on phones with this app. The CEO says through an initiative called Project Texas, it's deleting U.S. user data that's not on servers that are stored in the U.S. He expects that to be done this year and says when that's done, all of that data will be in the control of a U.S.-led security team. Joining us live to discuss this is cyber warfare expert Casey Fleming. He's the CEO of security advisory firm Black Ops Partners Corporation. Casey, great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Given TikTok's work through Project Texas, is a complete ban the only option for security? 
A complete ban is absolutely the only option for security. When you understand software and hardware, uh, it's very easy to write code, to flip a switch, to make it look a certain way, and then to transport it or make it talk to a, another server and then ship it off to the Chinese Communist Party. So a complete ban is absolutely required. I see what you mean about code being very sensitive here. An energy and commerce aide said TikTok is surveilling everything and everyone. That's names, ages, locations, and biometric data like face and voice prints. Casey, children are on TikTok. How can we be sure that their data is safe years down the road? Their data is not safe on TikTok and not on any smartphone. Other apps that are also competing with it, other big tech apps are also tracking the data and so on. The issue with the CCP and TikTok is that this information is going back to a known enemy who described themselves as a known enemy. So that's what the issue is. The issue is TikTok, because, and, and it has to be looked at under the lens of a thing called, of their strategy called unrestricted warfare. So it's not this innocuous, fun app. It is a weaponized military application. Your children's data is not safe. And by incidentally, your phone, your children's phone, when it's connected into the house, uh, also sends data from your smart TV, uh, your laptops, your computers, and when mom and dad are doing business emails, all that information is being sent back to the Chinese Communist Party. On this topic of unrestricted warfare, what questions do you think Congress needs to be asking the CEO right now? Questions, uh, you know, how do you guarantee that uh, the data will stay in the United States? How do you guarantee that day in and day out? How do you guarantee that it won't be flipped, the switch won't be flipped to send a copy or a shadow uh, part of the data to the Chinese Communist Party? The, the uh, owner, owning company, the holding company of TikTok is ByteDance, and ByteDance is under strict CCP law to share all data uh, and intellectual property that they collect with the Chinese Communist Party under the guise of national security and intelligence. That's what you're dealing with. This is a wartime go on you were saying it's a wartime TikTok is a wartime application everybody needs to understand what unrestricted warfare is and that's the strategy that the CCP and uh, the Russians and the rest are using against the US and the free world when you understand what unrestricted warfare is you need to understand that social media and specifically TikTok other CCP apps including gaming apps apps shine the top Three apps are TikTok, Shine, and Timu, which is the Amazon killer. Those are all weaponized applications against uh, our families, our companies, our intellectual property, our children, their biometric data, you name it. Casey, you mentioned ByteDance. Now, Bruce Schneier, a security technologist at Harvard, claims that banning TikTok would destroy the free internet as we know it. He admits that the parent company, ByteDance, which, as you mentioned, is required by law to share data with the CCP if asked, is shady. But he says Facebook and Instagram have the same data, and it often ends up sold to data brokers who themselves don't even know whose hands that data falls into. So he's calling for privacy laws, not quote-unquote security theater to protect Americans. Your response? A lot to unpack. Uh, the uh, Number one, he needs to understand that the world is under unrestricted warfare. It's a wartime situation. It's not conventional war. It's everything short of conventional war. So his comments are not accurate. Um, uh, by the way, the Chinese Communist Party shut down the free internet back in uh, the 2000s when they when they blocked their internet and created this, this great Chinese firewall. So they already started this process way back in the 2000s 
before they started launching their own internal internet and the apps that they're using to attack the United States and the free world. So it's, it's under that premise that you have to look at what this is all about. Casey, thank you for helping us look at this through the lens of unrestricted warfare and this double standard between what platforms are allowed in China and what platforms are allowed in the United States. Casey Fleming, CEO of Black Ops Partners Corporation, it's great to have your analysis. Thanks, Tim, for having me. Senator Ted Cruz has announced a constitutional amendment to ensure the number of Supreme Court justices remains at nine. In an emailed statement, Cruz wrote, the Democrats' answer to a Supreme Court that is dedicated to upholding the rule of law and the Constitution is to pack it with liberals who will rule the way they want. Cruz's proposal was first introduced in 2021 in response to Democrats suggesting they would change the size of the highest court. Between 1790 and 1869, the number of justices serving on the Supreme Court changed six times, ranging from five to ten, before settling on the present total of nine. In 2021, Senator Ed Markey introduced a proposal to add four justices to the court for a total of 13. Markey's measure failed, but the idea is still alive among some Democratic lawmakers. Former President Trump says he has evidence that will clear him of any alleged fault and prove his innocence. It's a letter from Michael Cohen's lawyer to the Federal Election Commission in 2018. The lawyer writing on Cohen's behalf states Cohen made the payments in question of his own accord with his own money. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more about the letter. Trump says the letter is totally exculpatory and must end the Manhattan District Attorney's witch hunt immediately. The letter says Cohen used his own personal funds to facilitate the payment of $130,000 in 2016, and that neither the Trump organization nor the Trump campaign was a party to the transaction or reimbursed Cohen directly or indirectly. Joseph Takapina, Trump's lawyer on the case, confirmed the letter's authenticity with the Epic Times. It could sever a key link in Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg's case against Trump. That's if his case revolves around alleged hush money paid to pornographic actress Stormy Daniels. Trump denies all wrongdoing in the case and any connections with Daniels. He says he's a victim of extortion. Cohen pleaded guilty to violating federal campaign finance laws in August 2018 for arranging the payment. He initially said he paid the money out of his own pocket, but reversed his account in his guilty plea. He then claimed Trump directed him to do so and that he was reimbursed by the Trump organization through routine legal expenses. It's widely speculated Bragg will bring his case based on a state charge of falsifying business records and a federal charge of campaign finance violations. If the statements in the letter are admissible, a fundamental part of Bragg's case would be undercut. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg has fired back at House Republicans seeking to probe his investigation into Trump. He referenced a letter sent to him by GOP lawmakers saying it only came after Trump created a false expectation that he would be arrested and that his lawyers reportedly urged intervention into the case. Bragg said neither fact is a legitimate basis for congressional inquiry. He called the lawmakers' request an unlawful incursion into New York sovereignty. The Arizona Supreme Court handed Carrie Lake a partial win on Wednesday. It ordered part of the former candidate's election lawsuit back to trial court. The judgment calls for examining whether Maricopa County followed signature verification policies in 2022. The Arizona Supreme Court declined to take on the rest of the appeal. Lake has contested the results of the 2022 election since her defeat at the hands of Democratic Governor Katie Hobbs. She has argued that thousands of Republican voters were disenfranchised on Election Day. Voting machine malfunctions were reported at around 60 percent of poll locations. 
And just ahead, Tennessee is blocking any local bans on gas stoves. This while the federal government decides how to handle the issue. We have that and more just after this break. Despite the series of bank failures in recent weeks, Citigroup CEO Jane Frazier is voicing confidence. She echoed Fed Chair Jerome Powell's view that the U.S. banking system remains sound. This is not something that is spread across the entire banking system. This isn't like it was last time. This is not a credit crisis. Um, this is a situation where it's a few banks um, that have some problems, and it's better to make sure that we nip that in the bud. Frazier made the remarks at the Economic Club of Washington, D.C. In the past two weeks, two U.S. banks collapsed. Credit Suisse was taken over by Swiss rival UBS, and 11 major U.S. banks lent $30 billion to the failing First Republic Bank. Among those reaching out was Citibank, the fourth largest lender in the U.S., but Frazier said the move wasn't to buy the First Republic Bank, but rather as a show of confidence. She added the unprecedented action unified banking giants that are normally fierce competitors. But contrary to her optimism, another financial leader warned that the bank turmoil isn't over yet. I mean, again, depending what you define by crisis, the, the, I think that we will have a significant number of more banks that will not exist 12, 24 months from now that exist today. Luke Ellis is the CEO of Man Group, one of the largest publicly traded hedge funds. In further explanation, he said some companies could be acquired by larger competitors, as was the case with Credit Suisse, and other companies will simply disappear. Ellis added that the main risk lies with smaller regional banks and recently formed retail banks. The Securities and Exchange Commission has announced charges against entrepreneur Justin Sun and eight celebrities. Those include actress Lindsay Lohan and social media star Jake Paul. The charges stem from allegations of illegally touting crypto asset companies Tronix and BitTorrent. Sun and his companies were also charged for unregistered offers and sales of crypto asset securities. The celebrities are accused of being compensated by Sun for promoting his crypto assets without disclosing the deal. Other celebrities caught in the alleged scheme include singers Akon, Neo, and Austin Mahone, rappers Soldier Boy and Lil Yachty, and internet celebrity Michelle Mason. Some of the celebrities agreed to pay a collective total of more than $400,000. That's to settle the charges without admitting or denying the findings. The SEC chair said the case shows the high risk faced by investors who purchase crypto asset securities sold without proper disclosure. The White House is officially disbanding its COVID-19 response team in May. That's according to a Washington Post report. The Biden administration plans to declare the public health emergency over at that same time. The White House COVID-19 response team has been winding down in recent months. It was responsible for the nationwide rollout of vaccines, treatments, and medical supplies. And Florida is considering expanding its rules for schools Currently, teachers are prohibited from teaching gender identity and other sexual content in kindergarten to the third grade. Now, the state's Department of Education is thinking about moving that up to grade 12. It would only be allowed as part of a reproductive health course or in cases specifically required by the state's academic standards. Teachers who violate the proposed rule could be suspended or have their licenses revoked. The DeSantis administration is backing the suggested change. The State Board of Education plans to consider it next month. 
Bills are also in the works to put policies in place around pronoun use in public schools. Florida educators would be prohibited from assigning or referring to students and staff with pronouns different from their sex. Tennessee is prohibiting local governments from banning gas stoves. The governor signed a bill last week with support from the Republican-led state legislature. It comes in the midst of bans by other localities and talk of a federal ban. State Senator Paige Welly told the Epic Times the bill was prompted by concerns over the federal government's talk of banning natural gas appliances. Federal agencies say gas stoves may emit unsafe levels of air pollutants, allegedly contributing to respiratory problems and climate change. These allegations have been criticized by Republicans and industry groups. Wally said Tennessee lawmakers, quote, wanted to make sure and be quite clear that Tennesseans are free to choose the type of energy sources and appliances they wish to use. The Biden administration has said the president doesn't support a ban on gas stoves. The man accused of the murder of a Los Angeles Catholic bishop has pleaded not guilty. Carlos Medina is accused of shooting and killing Auxiliary Bishop David O'Connell on February 18th. He's the husband of the bishop's housekeeper. In court yesterday, he entered a not guilty plea. Investigators haven't shared a potential motive, but he had previously made comments about the bishop owing him money. Medina continues to be held in custody with a $2.3 million bail. His preliminary hearing is set for May 17th. Over to New York City, the police department rescued a man dangling outside his 31st floor apartment window. When negotiations reached a standoff, a specialist rappelled down from the floor above. The 35-year-old man threatened to jump to his death through the broken glass of his window. It happened after the FBI came to serve him a warrant for a white-collar crime. Onlookers below could see the man's legs and part of his upper body seated at the windowsill and turned towards the street. Authorities closed the street for hours and spread out a huge inflatable cushion below. After about eight hours, a specialist rappelled down the outside of the building from the floor above and kicked the man back inside his apartment while officers inside grabbed him from behind. He was then taken into custody. The rescue was handled by the Elite Emergency Service Unit of the NYPD. Coming up, the U.S. is focusing on selling military equipment to Taiwan. The Secretary of State says the Biden administration's $63 billion budget adds to Washington's advantage over Beijing. $170 million upgrade project to improve a seaport in the Solomon Islands. But with a Chinese company set to build it, Western nations are taking issue. We'll have the details soon when we return. Good to have you back with us. Secretary of State Antony Blinken went to bat for the Biden administration on matters of foreign policy yesterday. He defended a $63 billion budget request for fiscal year 2024. Blinken says it will strengthen U.S. efforts to outcompete the Chinese Communist Party. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on Blinken's testimony. Fund as well. Blinken fielded numerous questions about Russia and China during the Senate hearing. The budget will sustain our security, economic, energy and humanitarian support for Ukraine to ensure that President Putin's war remains a strategic failure. He stood by his previous comments that sanctions on Russia are having a crippling effect. Senator Bill Haggerty asked Blinken what Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping meant when he said communist China and Russia are going to be pushing for changes not seen for a hundred years. 
And I think when it comes to China, they actually want a world order, but an illiberal one. Mm -hmm. We continue to stand strongly for a liberal one. Blinken says President Biden remains committed to the Indo-Pacific region. Which is why this proposal asks for an 18 percent increase in our budget for that region over FY23. The Secretary of State noted Taiwan has boosted its defense spending by 11 percent. He says the U.S. is focusing on sales of military equipment to Taiwan and working to address challenges around production capacity. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Chip wars between the U.S. and China continue. Semiconductors or microchips are what power our modern way of life, from our phones and computers to OpenAI's ChatGPT. And the U.S. is making sure China doesn't get a leg up. Entity's Tiffany Meyer has more. The Commerce Department on Tuesday proposing new rules to limit the amount of chips ending up in the hands of adversarial countries, like China. That's following the CHIPS Act passed last August that put aside $52 billion to advance America's chip capacity, from research and development to manufacturing. The new rule includes a $100,000 spending cap on advanced capacities in China. That's part of Washington's goals to thwart Beijing's ambitions. Meanwhile, Beijing is taking matters into its own hands. That's by giving subsidies and state-backed research to hand-picked firms like SMIC, Huawei and Huahong Semiconductor. While some companies are trying to make the best of both worlds. U.S. chipmaker NVIDIA is tweaking its flagship product so that it can be exported to China. U.S. regulators last year pushed new rules that would bar NVIDIA from selling its two most advanced chips, the H100 and A100, to China. That's over national security concerns. Those chips are needed for AI development, such as OpenAI's ChatGPT and more. NVIDIA's answer is the A800, which doesn't have the same capabilities as the flagship ones, but allows the chips to be sold legally to China. But not all parties are convinced. South Korea saying the new U.S. rules will not force companies to shut down their China factories. That's because the world's largest and second largest memory chip makers, both based in South Korea, have chip production facilities in China. While the new rules will limit chip growth in China by 5% for funding recipients, it does not restrict investment in technology upgrades or equipment replacement. That's according to South Korea's trade ministry. This comes as both companies invest in the U.S., building plants worth billions of dollars. That's looking for U.S. funding under the CHIPS Act. An Indo-Pacific seaport is in for a big upgrade to the tune of $170 million. A Chinese state company won the contract to expand it, but it's stoking concerns among certain Western nations. A scenic spot in the Pacific Ocean at the center of battle between world powers. A Chinese state-run company winning a major bid in the Solomon Islands. It's for a multi-million dollar contract set to upgrade an international seaport in the country's capital city. The port reconstruction deal is part of a $170 million project. And China's civil engineering construction company will head it off. An official with the Solomon Islands Infrastructure Ministry revealed the company had been the sole bidder. The plan covers upgrading roads and wharves, areas where ships can dock and upload their cargo. The Solomon Islands awarded the roads portion to the same Chinese company back in 2022. But the project is sparking concerns overseas. The Solomon Islands struck a security pact with Beijing last year. 
Since then, the U.S. and allies like Australia, New Zealand and Japan have suspected China has military motives, namely that it wants to build a naval base in the region. The Solomon Islands and China have denied the deal would allow a naval base. But why does the island nation hold so much strategic importance? During World War II, islands in the area played a major role between the Allies and Axis powers. Japan's occupation of those land masses created a defensive buffer and gave Japan control over East Asia and the Southwest Pacific. When the U.S. later gained control, the shift turned the tide of the conflict. As for Beijing, a Solomon Islands naval base would also give China a place to refresh troops. With fears of a Chinese base in its backyard, Canberra is also reviewing Chinese activity on its own soil. Following a parliamentary committee's recommendation and a review by the nation's Defense Department, Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has confirmed his government will review its 99-year lease of Darwin Port to another Chinese company. The seaport serves as an important gateway and strategic resource hub. It was leased to China's land bridge in 2015 for over 360 million U.S. dollars. Reports have revealed that some Chinese state-owned shipping companies have their own paramilitary abilities, including in-house militia, and that Beijing could mobilize those troops. The Australian Prime Minister also said he would cancel contracts with Chinese state-owned companies that aren't in the national interest. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Still to come, the head of the Swiss National Bank wants a smooth transition from the Credit Suisse fallout. He hopes the UBS takeover can take place swiftly and not affect the economy. A new study sees cocaine use trending upward across Europe, especially in the West and South. More shortly here on NTD News Today. The Swiss National Bank chairman says measures taken by the bank, the Swiss government and financial regulators have halted the crisis surrounding Credit Suisse. UBS made a full commitment to the takeover of, of Credit Suisse. Now it's extremely important that both parties involved, Credit Suisse and UBS, uh, do everything that the takeover will be successful and the next couple of weeks until the closing will go smoothly through. The Swiss National Bank said UBS's takeover of Credit Suisse averted a financial disaster, adding that it's now critical for financial stability that the merger goes smoothly and quickly. Jordan says the multi-billion dollar rescue package prevented a systematic crisis. He says the next two weeks will be crucial. The dramatic events have overshadowed the Swiss National Bank's fourth successive interest rate hike as it seeks to battle stubborn inflation. It raised its benchmark interest rate by 50 basis points, hoping to bring down inflation that was at 3.4 percent in February. The bank is aiming to bring it within the target band of 0 to 2 percent. Londoners share their views on Boris Johnson as he testified in front of a parliamentary committee over lockdown violations. Some are not sure whether anyone else could have done better. Others call him a liar and hypocrite. As Boris Johnson faces a grilling over whether he misled MPs over lockdown parties, Londoners are weighing in. This compliance worker said she was not certain if the former PM broke the rules intentionally. It's very difficult to say. I think it's quite clear to everyone that he misled everyone in everything. But 
Do you blame him? Could anyone have done any better? I'm not certain. It's, it's, that's the question, isn't it? Could anyone that stepped and was on his shoes could have done anything better than what he did? I don't know. Some Londoners voiced their distrust of Johnson, saying he's a hypocrite. I don't trust him. I don't think many people do. I think he's proven himself to be a liar. I don't trust him at all. I think um, the latter, I think he, he's a hypocrite and I don't think people are, are ready to forgive him because of what happened during the pan pandemic. If the committee finds Johnson committed a contempt of parliament, he could face suspension. This consultant said Johnson had no future in politics. Well, I think he's already, um, he's already passed it politically, to be honest. Um, <clears throat> given the, I haven't seen the evidence that's been released today, but uh, everything's pointing towards him um, being, uh, yeah, being torn apart, hopefully. Others disagreed, seeing Johnson returning to the front line. I think a lot of people hold on to it. I think there's also a lot of law, law Tories that won't bat an eyelid at him being reinstated and maybe after his less than 10 day suspension, he'll be back at it. No, I think he'll come back. I think he'll come back. So you so don't it's not, not the end of Boris Johnson, no, it's more, more life in him. A suspension of 10 days or more could allow his constituents to petition for a special election to replace Johnson as a member of parliament. The cost of living in the UK shot up more than expected last month. Food inflation was at its highest level in more than 45 years, pushed up by vegetable shortages and pricier drinks in pubs and restaurants. UK inflation in February rose unexpectedly as vegetable shortages helped push up food prices. Most economists were expecting the figure to fall below 10%. Instead, inflation rose to 10.4% in February from 10.1% in January. The surprise jump comes after food and non-alcoholic drinks prices rose by 18% year-on-year last month the highest in nearly half a century. The Office for National Statistics said shortages of vegetables such as tomatoes and peppers in recent weeks were largely behind the surging food prices. The data showed that rocketing prices of drinks in pubs and restaurants also drove inflation higher, coming as the hospitality sector looks to offset sky-high energy and staff bills. Inflation had been steadily edging lower since its peak at 11% in October. The unexpected rise confirms that the pressure of the cost of living is far from over for British households and businesses. Chancellor Jeremy Hunt said falling inflation isn't inevitable, so we need to stick to our plan to halve it this year. The data also adds to the headache for the Bank of England ahead of its decision on interest rates on Thursday. Some experts have been predicting the bank would hold off from raising rates further due to the market's volatility. But the latest inflation data will likely complicate the decision. Cocaine use is on the rise across Europe. That's according to a new study by the European Monitoring Center for Drugs and Drug Addiction. The EU Drug Agency tested water samples in over 100 cities in Europe. Water sampling is a way to identify illicit drug trends. The study analyzed traces of cocaine, ecstasy, marijuana, and other drug types. Compared to the 2021 data, more than half of the cities showed increased cocaine residue in 2022. Western and Southern European cities recorded the highest detections, particularly in Belgium, the Netherlands, Spain, and Portugal. Barcelona is ramping up solar energy production with a city council initiative and subsidies. Entities Andrew Thomas has details on capitalizing on the city's sunny weather. 
Barcelona is soaked in sunshine for much of the year, so solar power is becoming an increasingly popular renewable energy option. To help alleviate the investment cost, the city council is offering a 50% tax rebate to make the switch. Regulation compels solar panels mainly in newly constructed buildings, not in existing older buildings. In this latter case, you must convince citizens that it's good for them, not just for the planet, but also for themselves. This initiative aims to persuade citizens living in older buildings that this could be very interesting for them. Jordi Bosch has been convinced that solar power is the way forward. He's had solar panels recently installed. The cost is more or less about 750 euros per panel. They generate energy daily, more during the summer than during winter. And I predict we will recover the investment in about five years, considering that a solar panel's lifespan is 30 years. With the new panels, his monthly electricity bill is expected to decrease from $53 to $11. Resident Francesc Kerr is a retiree who prides himself in his eco-friendly lifestyle. I hope that one day, when we arrive in Barcelona by plane, we'll be able to see all the city's rooftops full of solar panels. We live in a very sunny country with lots of solar energy potential. Barcelona has also doubled its solar panels, but some say they're not a complete solution. I think that another important aspect of this crisis is the necessity of decreasing our energy consumption, because regardless of installing and using alternative clean energy sources, today's consumption level is unsustainable. Spain's government declared a national climate emergency in 2020. Officials want up to 95 percent of the country's electricity to come from renewable sources by 2040. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Troublesome badgers in the Netherlands have brought trains to a standstill. Rail companies fear the badgers' tunnels may weaken the ground beneath the tracks. Rail workers are driving badgers out of a tunnel dug under a major railway line. The badgers are under legal protection. The current plan is to build a sand home for the animals near the tracks, then lure or drive them in. It's unclear how long this operation will take. Train traffic has stopped between two southern cities, making thousands of travelers take longer routes. The situation may continue for a few more weeks. Similar badger dens affecting railroads now exist in 40 locations across the country. And coming up, a Ukrainian ballerina returns to the stage after fleeing Kyiv following the Russian invasion. She dances once again in front of an adoring audience. And an exhibition in St. Petersburg celebrates 350 years of Russian ballet. We'll bring you a look at the costumes, artifacts, and displays when we return. Welcome back. Russian and Belarusian athletes are currently welcome to compete at the Paris 2024 Games. International Olympic Committee President Thomas Bach is defending the plan. Here's Bach speaking at a forum yesterday. 
If politics decides who can take part in a competition, then sport and athletes become tools of politics. It is then impossible for sport to transfer its uniting powers. I think it's a scandal that Ukrainian athletes will be asked to stand on the podium next to Russian athletes who will laugh and smile at cameras while Ukrainian athletes are thinking of their deceased colleagues, family members and friends. I just don't understand that. The IOC issued sanctions against Russia and Belarus following Russia's invasion of Ukraine last year, but it's now reluctant to exclude their athletes from the Olympics entirely. The committee fears a return to the boycotts of the Cold War era. It set out a pathway in January for competitors from Russia and Belarus to earn Olympic slots through Asian qualifying and to compete as neutral athletes in Paris next year. In Kyiv, bishops of an Orthodox church historically aligned with Russia are trying to stop being evicted from their headquarters. They were turned back at a checkpoint when they tried to meet President Zelensky. Kyiv wants to seize the site of their church and the cultural treasures that are housed inside. The government says the Ukrainian Orthodox Church has broken tenancy agreements and must leave its historic seat, a sprawling, almost thousand-year-old gold-domed complex in the hills above central Kyiv. Ukraine's second-largest church is accused by the government of retaining links with the Russian Orthodox Church, which supported Moscow's invasion. Kyiv has opened criminal cases against over 50 church clergy in the past year on charges that include treason. The church says it cut all formal ties with Russia last May and that the charges are politically motivated. It's unclear what will happen if next week's eviction deadline is not met. A Ukrainian ballerina fled Kyiv on a packed train after the Russian invasion. She thought she would never dance on stage again. Now she's back in front of an audience. And today's Andrew Thomas has more on her incredible journey. The lights are dimmed in Budapest's opera house. Ukrainian ballerina Anna Muramseva moves elegantly across the stage. The audience bursts into applause. It's totally different production of Swan Lake here. And for me, it feels like I really have to prove. It's, uh, it's always nervous. It, it's normal to, ner to be nervous. She last danced on the Kyiv stages in February last year. When she fled Ukraine, the 29-year-old had to leave her point shoes behind did not take anything, I just had to, to leave everything. I was, I even didn't, when I left Kyiv, I even did not count that I will dance any day again. I was like, I said bye-bye to my career. Muram Seva had to rebuild herself as a dancer, both physically and mentally. This March, she enchanted the audience with her performance. Now she works on her mental health every day. She focuses on her training and tight schedule but it can still be a lot to handle. We call it war-life balance. No, it's not work-life balance anymore. It, it, it was diff difficult. Now it's getting a little bit easier because I have to work uh, with my mental health. Murun Seva's mother plans to come see her at the end of March. She gives the dancer strength. With the war still raging on, Muram Seva has no plans to return to Ukraine. Her contract has been extended for another year in Budapest. I'm waiting for this day that one day I can dance at Kiev stage again. Um, but for now, 
I have contract here. My decision is to stay here. For now, that's as far as she can plan ahead. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. An exhibition celebrating 350 years of Russian ballet is drawing crowds in St. Petersburg. The display features costumes, artwork, and video installations from some of the world's most famous ballets. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. First position, Russian ballet, brings together thousands of exhibits. Some of the featured items include point ballet shoes and ballet season posters. Paintings, drawings, sculptures, figurines, and without question, costumes are here. We focus our attention on the Bolshoi and Mikhailovsky theater for this project. The Alexandrinsky theater gave us access to its wardrobe department. At some point, we were even afraid that the Manege and its 4,500 square meters of exhibition area wouldn't be enough to store everything. Artifacts tell the stories of choreographers, dancers, composers, and the history of ballet in Russia. We have, in fact, unique items. For instance, house slippers of Tchaikovsky, kindly provided by the Museum of Tchaikovsky in Klin. These slippers have never been outside of that museum. Therefore, the fact that they are being exhibited here is a great success. The exhibition is divided into several parts, Russian spirit, the Royal Box, and Soviet Ballet. There is also a video installation showing the famous ballet performances of Swan Lake. We conducted a study, especially for the exhibition, on how the plot of Swan Lake has changed. On the second floor, we have the laboratory of Swan Lake, where we demonstrate some main milestones of changes to the story. Not only does the public not know that in 1887 the plot was also absolutely different, many specialists also don't know this. Visitors are guided by audio as they navigate the exhibition. There are also exhibits on anatomy. Moving images show how the muscles of ballet dancers work. We go through two not very well-known but good examples of elements of the classical ballet in terms of anatomy. These are the grand jeté pas du chat and the shoulder lift or the chair. The soloists of the Mikhailovsky Theater, Marat Shemyonov and Arina Peren, helped us with this. In the specially created videos, we demonstrate what the muscles are responsible for from the point of view of anatomy. First position, Russian Ballet, runs until May 21st at St. Petersburg Mendez Exhibition Hall. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Still to come, faithfulness, bravery, and fortitude. Military members find inspiration in an unlikely place, a performing arts show. Beethoven, the picture of a passionate artist complete with poor health. But why did the German composer die in his 50s? Scientists are sequencing his DNA for answers. We'll be back with more soon here on NTD News. Shen Yun brings a message the world needs to hear. According to audience members in Colorado, NTD spoke to theatergoers with military backgrounds about the performance. Shen Yun Performing Arts performed in Colorado Springs from March 17 to 19. Patrons with military backgrounds shared their experiences with the live orchestra of both Eastern and Western blend. 
Oh, the costumings were absolutely amazing. I think that was that and the orchestra were two of my favorite things today. It was That was one of the things that I was really blown away with was how beautiful everything was. Well, it was great. It was really good. My wife and I are opera fans and we go to the opera a lot and we hear lots of the orchestras, but this was unique because of the Chinese instruments as well as the, you know, the normal instruments that we, we consider normal. Through classical Chinese dance, Shen Yun portrays China's ancient spiritual heritage, but the company cannot perform in China due to the Chinese regime's persecution of freedom of beliefs. Not gonna lie, a uh, big guy like me, retired military, and uh, yeah, I teared up a little bit on the uh, the current events whenever the daughter was, you know, killed in prison. That kind of that did make me shed a little bit, a little bit tear. Yeah, just overall great performance. I loved it. Uh, brought my kids here to get them a little bit of cultural enrichment, and we're glad we came. Thank you. I absolutely love that, and especially here in you know Westernized culture, we're we're not really tied that that well into Eastern culture and religion. So just getting a little bit of the history and a little bit of the background tied into the past as well as what's currently going on, um, it's it's a very unique perspective, and I'm really glad that it's coming here. And maybe it'll be eye-opening for a lot of people. The New York-based Shen Yun was established in 2006 and now has eight different companies that tour the world simultaneously. Oh, it's wonderful. Uh, I think uh, there's a lot of faith in divinity that uh, throughout the world and that showed that in this performance tonight. Faithfulness, you know, be, be hopeful, uh, bravery, fortitude. Uh, those are really good messages and I think more of the world needs to hear that type of message. It was great. It was a wonderful production. It was worth waiting four years through COVID to see this. <laughs> NTD News, Colorado Springs, Colorado. Shen Yun is coming to Lincoln Center in New York City in April and running for a month in theaters in the greater New York area. Scientists are sequencing Beethoven's DNA from strands of hair, providing some hints about why he died. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the German composer's genome. Beethoven spent decades battling severe health problems. Now his DNA is shedding light on why, according to a study published in Current Biology. But his deafness is still a mystery. Ultimately, we couldn't find any simple monogenic causes for hearing loss. There are no harmful, unambiguously harmful variants in genes implicated in heritable forms of hearing loss. The composer himself wanted doctors to study his health issues after he died. With Beethoven in particular, it is the case that illnesses sometimes very much limited his creative work. And for physicians, it has always been a mystery what was really behind it. And so it's just a huge opportunity when you get a new source like a genome where you can really get new insights. Researchers have been able to pull genetic clues from locks of Beethoven's hair. They didn't find any clear signs of what caused Beethoven's hearing loss, but they did find a major genetic risk factor for liver disease. The composer may have been infected with hepatitis B in the months before his death as well. It's first in evidence in 1821 with a two-month attack of jaundice that then clears. It, it possibly reappears in the winter of 1824 to 1825 with these heavy nosebleeds that he talks about. Beethoven's regular drinking exacerbated his condition. The combination was probably enough to cause the liver failure that eventually killed him. 
In the spring of 1825, he describes spitting a great deal of blood from his windpipe. This is likely indicative of cirrhosis, so the, the further progression of his liver disease. Beethoven was born in December 1770. He died in March 1827 at age 56, but the composer left a legacy that endures today. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. The world's oldest and most complete Hebrew Bible on display right now at a museum in Israel. It will go up for auction this May in New York. The ancient manuscript is known as Codex Sassoon, named after its previous owner, David Solomon Sassoon. He bought the book in 1929, but it was only recently that his new owner confirmed its age. It was written around the year 900, either in the land of Israel or Syria. The document offers a key link between the Jewish oral tradition and the modern Hebrew Bible. It is a very luxurious, lavish manuscript on 792 pages of text written by one scribe over the course of either a year or perhaps two years. It is a monumental book of importance. Sotheby's put the item's value at over $30 million. According to the auction house, the 1,000-year-old holy book would be the most valuable printed text or historical document ever sold at auction if it fetches anywhere near the estimated price. A zebra was recaptured on Thursday after escaping from a zoo in South Korea with pedestrians appearing shocked and surprised by the rare sight. In a video provided by the Seoul Gwangjing Fire Station, the zebra was seen walking in an alley around residential buildings before rescue workers fired a tranquilizer dart at it. The zebra then collapsed on the ground before it was wrapped up in a net and loaded onto a truck. A zoo official said the animal was later returned safely to Seoul Children's Grand Park, where it had escaped from. And that's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City. 